Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Why don't we start with last night's game one of the NBA Finals. So after a run of crappy, crappy NBA playoff games, we finally got a good one. We finally got the one we deserved. Finally, I could roll in here and not say, hey, by the way, the NHL postseason is so much better than the NBA postseason. We finally got a game. As bad as some of those Celtic Heat games were, this game last night was just that good. And the first quarter was electric for the Dubs. More specifically, it was electric for Steph Curry. To say that Steph came out firing would be a major, major understatement. Experience, finals experience for the Warriors' advantage. And there's one of the main guys, Steph Curry, missing his first three. Reloads, relocates. So what I'm saying is he missed his first. Then he came back moments later to get his first make. And then he just kept on going. Not two, not three, not four, not five. He had six threes in the first quarter. Six threes, 21 points. Remember when Michael Jordan shrugged after hitting six threes and a half against the Blazers? You know that, that sometimes I don't even get the magnitude of me shrug. You know, that kind of arrogance, that Ionic shrug. Remember that? Remember that? Like, I I don't even understand how bleeping dominant that I am sometimes. That shrug. Remember that? Yeah, well, that shrug, that shrug of I don't even get the magnitude of me was after six threes and a half. Steph had six and a quarter and did it like it was nothing at all. Like it was easy. And he did it against the league's best defense. Man's game. It's a man's game, right? 12 minutes in, everybody was looking to carve Steph's name on the finals MVP trophy. And how silly is that, man? I mean, how silly is that? How silly does that look and feel right now? How silly is that? Here was your first hint about that being an overreaction. Steph Curry just burned down that building and the Celtics were still right there. Steph was setting NBA records in the first quarter, yet Golden State only led by four. Not only that, they trailed by two at halftime. In other words, Boston saw what Curry did. Hey, by the way, do you know I'm half chowed? Now I'm claiming that, right? Boston saw what Curry was doing and didn't blink, didn't flinch. <laughs> not only did they not flinch, man, they shut this guy down the rest of the way. You see, Boston is not scared. In fact, they're unscared. They're tough as hell on defense, and if they get rolling on offense, look the hell out. Everybody who wanted to talk about their lack of finals experience, remember that stat. Everybody who was hammering away on that got exposed last night because that stat was completely and utterly useless. Has there ever been a more meaningless stat, a more inaccurate stat? Hey, by the way, they've got a lot of experience. A ton of experience. They've been to the conference finals multiple times. They just won a pair of game sevens. They're not backing down. They're not afraid. They don't care about that big stage. And they didn't last night either. Even when they were down 12 going into the fourth. In fact, they were down 15 late in the third. But going down or being down 12 in the fourth, they went to work. They went to work on a 40 to 16 fourth quarter. They put up 40, 40, 40, 
40. in the fourth quarter. 40. 40. On the road in the finals. They turned a 12-point deficit into a 12-point beatdown in 12 minutes. It's insane, right? I'll tell you what else is insane. Derek White. Peyton Pritchard. Al bleeping Horford. Being 13 for 17 from three at one point. It's incredible. Hey, let me remind you yet again about Al Horford. Because this guy, man, what a dude. That man is the man. I mean, he is that dude. And that dude was doing it again last night. He turns 36 today, along with Alvi. Yet he looked like he was 26 last night. And Alvin still looks like he's 16. But better yet, Horford turns 36, had 26, and went for 26. 26, 6, and 3. And to me, it still doesn't even feel like it sums up the impact he had on that game. Because every single time that guy touched the ball, something good happened for Boston. He did it from deep. Derek White, offensive end, bounce pass, lead for Tatum, kick out, trail three, Horford, got it! <laughs> the little old man of the sea coming through, man! He did it also from the paint. Jalen Brown, handoff, Al Horford, Hamper. scoops it up and in, scored, and the foul, and the Celtics are going to win a game one that is going to leave a mark. That'll leave two marks. You'll have a blackout and a bloody nose leaving here. All right. Cedric Maxwell. I'll tell you what, though, about Al. He was flexing. He was blowing kisses. He should. I mean, that's just what Al Horford does. If you don't believe me, ask Marcus Smat. I mean, we were ecstatic for him. I mean, <laughs> Al's the OG, man. He puts in the work, you know. And don't nobody deserve to be here more than him. You know, and the way that he carries himself professionally, the professionalism he comes to this game with every day, you know, uh, we knew that it was only a matter of time for him to have a big game and continue to have a big game, you know. That's what he does. That's what he's been doing. And, uh, you know, he's been that catalyst for us this whole year. That's Al Horford, man. He is the pro's pro, the ultimate professional. Find me. I tweeted it last night, but find me a more professional guy than Al Horford. The Warriors were happy to let White Horford and Smart take threes, I'm sure. And they paid the iron price. They got smashed in the fourth. Absolutely run out of their sparkling new building. I know they're probably happy to have White, Horford, and Smart taking threes instead of Jason Tatum getting loose. But maybe, maybe you don't let those guys have wide-ass open threes. Wide-open looks. Time and time again. Maybe you rethink that. Maybe when they're getting those looks and they're knocking them down, maybe you do something about that. And I want to repeat this. Golden State did not just lose the fourth quarter. They lost that game. They lost the home court. And now they've got a ton of pressure on themselves. All in a matter of 12 minutes. And they lost a game where Jason Tatum went 3 for 17. And you know there's no way in hell that's going to happen again. I hate to say it, but... The Dubs and their fans had already banked that one. They had already banked that dub. The crowd was partying, and then Boston wrecked that party. The dudes in green went on a 17-0 run in the fourth. That's not just hot shooting. That's not just getting lucky. That's locking up the other guys on defense and then getting great looks on offense and knocking them in. 
And despite what some of the Warriors were saying after that game, Boston did not just have a good fourth quarter. They had a good game, a really good game. They were down by four after Curry's fireball start. They were up at halftime. Sure, they got lost in the third. See, but that's the Celtics. I said it yesterday. As great as they've looked, there are times when they do really dumb things. And they do get lost. And they got kind of lost in the sauce or whatever it was in the third quarter. But then they dominated the fourth. They didn't just get hot, all right? Yes, they hit 21 threes. But they also shut Curry down after the first quarter. And then nobody else in white really got anything going. Clay had a quiet 15. Jordan Poole had an even more quiet 9. Bottom line, Boston blitzed the hell out of Golden State. And the Warriors did not even know what hit them. They were shell-shocked. They couldn't get anything going at all. In that fourth quarter, they looked like the team that had never been there before. They looked like the team that had less rest and was coming back and gassed out after seven-game series back-to-back. They looked bad. They did. They looked really bad late. And they weren't freaking out after the game. They were calm. They were measured. But let's be real. That's not just one loss. They can say that. But that's not just one loss. That is a massive loss. They had that game. They had a 1-0 lead. And Boston ripped it from them. One more point I want to make. Golden State did not choke that away. Boston didn't steal it. Boston just flat out ripped it. They ripped it from them in every way possible. That's the kind of comeback that's going to give a team a lot of confidence. That's the kind of loss that's going to give the other team a reason to doubt itself. I don't care what they say. Now Golden State is in a must-win situation. Sunday is a must-win because they're not going to beat these guys four times in five games with three of those games on the road. Sunday, straight up, is a must-win game for Golden State. You lose Sunday, and that series is already over. And I never thought that I'd be saying that. 1-800-636-8686. Let me get some reaction right quick. Al Horford. Shot so many threes last night, his arms are ready to fall off. Speaking of arms, did you see the pipes Alvin has unleashed today in that polo shirt? Python season for the birthday boy. Happy birthday, my guy. War Lady Clones, Mustafa in Philly. War Lady Clones. (laughs) Look at that gun show. The Pythons. It's Python season for Alvin, man. He's having a day. Got a box of donuts. It's Python season. Oh, yeah. I love that sound. It makes me smile. It does make me happy because that is the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources that were once reserved for big business. That way, upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and then effortlessly stay informed. Hey, believe me, I know where this podcast started. I know what we used to try to sell. I know where we are right now, and I know what we sell right now. Shopify has everything to do with that. In other words, like mine. Shopify powers over millions of businesses, millions from first sale to full scale, reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is possibility. 
powered by Shopify. You know what? Find out for yourself. Try it out for yourself. Go to shopify.com slash R-O-M-E, Rome, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Again, try it out for yourself. Take it for a test drive. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Rome right now. Shopify.com slash R-O-M-E. Chris Herring is my guest. Chris, great to have you back. How are you? I'm good, Jim. How are you? Good, good. Good to visit. All right, so the conference finals, Chris had some pretty nasty games, pretty ugly games. What were you thinking last night then when Steph Curry got off to that amazing start, but but Boston was still right there with them at the end of the first quarter? It was nice to see some some fireworks and a close game instead of it just being one-sided fireworks. And, uh, and obviously, it, it turned out to be a pretty entertaining game beyond that. Uh, you know, the Boston lead at half. Um, the Warriors went on one of their, their patented third-quarter runs, and then uh, obviously kind of the reversal that we didn't see happening, I think, was that Boston just kept hitting shot after shot after shot to start the fourth with really no response from Golden State, um, particularly a game at Golden State. I think that was the part that, that kind of threw us off. And um, I imagine that we'll see counters in game two, my question is, how much does Golden State react? You listen to Steve Kerr after the game and, and Draymond Green after the game, and, and Draymond in particular almost seemed kind of dismissive of the sort of performance that you saw out of Boston, and I, I think was probably a little bit too dismissive, uh, frankly, because Boston is a team that has guys that they can play five out and make shots like that. Maybe it was a little bit crazy to see it all happen in one quarter, but we've seen Boston make 23s in a game before. Um, we've seen Al Horford. I'm pretty sure I was on your show the last time Al Horford had a big game like this in the playoffs, like he did against Milwaukee. Derek White had a game like this two games ago against Miami. So it, it, it's not so stunning that it happened. It's just that it all happened in one quarter as opposed to it happening more spaced out over the course of the game. Chris Herring is joining us. You just gave us a lot of really, really good information. I could respond to any and all of that. You make so many good points. What about if we were to backtrack? I mean, when Steph starts off the way he was, Chris, shooting the way he was, what did you see in Boston? How did they adjust defensively, and how were they able to limit him the way they did the rest of the game? Did you, If you saw that one portion, it's really rare that when you're watching the games on television that you see those mic'd up segments where they actually tell you anything. They're, it's kind of wasted air most of the time. But last night, um, they caught Marcus Smart kind of imploring his teammates to play further up in the pick and roll. Uh, at the very beginning of the game, that first quarter, you saw a lot of plays where Robert Williams was kind of stuck maybe just above the three-point line, but not much. And with Steph Curry, you can't do that. Him, Damian Lillard, Trey Young, they'll pull up from 35 feet. So you have to be right on the other side of the screen to take away his airspace. And Marcus Smart made the comment. He said, this isn't the Miami series anymore. You've got to play higher up. And so as soon as they came out of that first quarter, there were two things that happened. One, Steph Curry had that third foul very early, um, which might have thrown him out of rhythm. And then two – Boston was playing much higher up the rest of the game, and he really didn't have that space anymore, and he didn't score in that second quarter. And it was a big momentum shift. Um, You also had the fact that maybe because Steph was so hot at the end of that first quarter that Jordan Poole, who normally comes in towards the end of the first or the back end of the first quarter and kind of gets it going himself, maybe because Steph was so hot, Jordan Poole really didn't 
have like a transition, a clean transition, a clean handoff uh, from Steph and maybe wanted to let Steph kind of um, get the rest of it out of the system before he got going, and he never really did get going, Jordan Poole, over the course of the game. So those were the really big differences that I noticed from quarter one to quarter two. Boston's defense tightened, and Jordan Poole really never got going. Steph Curry never really got extremely comfortable again until the third quarter. Chris Herring is joining us. Chris, what about Jason Tatum? He obviously did not shoot it well last night, but when you look at his 13 assists and how he got other guys involved, set everybody else up, what does that tell you about his growth as a playmaker? Yeah, yeah, and it's been there for a while. This was the big um, button that Ime Udoka pushed kind of midseason when he implored him, uh, Jalen Brown, to become better playmakers. He's talked about how when he was in San Antonio that Greg Popovich didn't hesitate to tell Tony Parker when he was doing too much and needed to, to throw the ball elsewhere because he was being doubled or because the second defender was in, in his sight. Um, Jason Tatum's been doing this for a while. My, my teammate, Michael Pina at Sports Illustrated, wrote a piece a couple months ago about just how much better Jason Tatum was seeing the floor. I think he had seven assists before halftime which is just tremendous growth from him because a lot of – we've seen it before in the finals. Uh, we've seen it before with, with, with Tatum's idol and, and Colby sometimes where you can have a really, really off shooting night and it kind of takes the wind out of everything else. Maybe you're showing effort on defense, but maybe you're not passing the ball. And then in a case like that, the defense wins every single time because they know as long as they lock you out that nobody else is going to score either. Tatum had the seven assists, I think, before half. Those seven before half would have been more than anybody else in the Warriors had the whole game. Tatum's first half. And, you know, he, he was still making plays uh, for them, which allowed them to be in a rhythm so that by the time you get to a fourth quarter, the game's not over. And so then you have Horford, you have Derek White, you've got Marcus Smart, you've got Peyton Pritchard that are all engaged. And, and Jalen Brown took over the game enough in the fourth quarter where I think he had five assists in the fourth quarter alone as guys continued to make shots and, and really hit all those shots to start the fourth. Um, the game wasn't over, even though we thought it was. I think most of us thought it probably was kind of in the back. But um, Jason Tatum having those guys in enough of a rhythm early from moving the ball, even when he didn't have it going, I think was a huge factor. We're talking to Chris Herring. Chris, I think you're right. I think you and I did talk once before about Al Horford in a playoff game. And this guy, God, what a stud. I mean, I'm watching this guy. And, of course, that, that stat about experience in the finals was just so ridiculous. I mean, it was so utterly meaningless. But to see this guy show up the way he did and to hear the young guns on that team talk about him the way they do, what was your sense of watching him last night, the way he conducted himself on both ends of the floor and the impact he had on everybody? Yeah, I mean, he, he's someone who he struck me as a pretty clear X factor in this series where there are two guys, really, that I was thinking about. Him from the Boston side, and as you talk about experience, I think Jordan Poole from the Golden State side. Um, really, in some ways, this series is going to end up being a little bit like the Mavs series in the sense that Boston can kind of create their own shot pretty much, I would, I would almost say sometimes more easily than Golden State can, which is really rare that you can say that about a Golden State team. There were times watching the game last night where it felt like Golden State had spacing problems, which it really, since when do we have that when, you know, when Steph Curry is, is picking up double teams at, at half court and stuff like that. But there are times where Draymond Green shooting the way he shoots and having Kevon Looney out there that 
it, it kind of gets a little bit cramped where you're waiting for somebody else to make a play. Clay Thompson has never really been a huge, huge playmaker. He's someone that comes around screen. Jordan Poole is that guy. You know, from the last saw them in the finals, they had Kevin Durant. Jordan Poole is, is being asked to be that guy now. And for the last few series, it hasn't been a huge problem for that. But all of a sudden, you've got a lot of guys that don't mind switching on to somebody like Jordan Poole. We all saw that shot at the end of the first half last night where he hit the top of the backboard. He never fully looked comfortable. Again, maybe some of it was Steph being on such a hot streak when Jordan Poole needed to come into the game. Uh, but there's that. And then on the other side, Horford um, is someone that you have to kind of leave somebody open if you're going to throw extra defensive attention at Tatum or Jalen Brown. And Horford is comfortable being that guy, just like we saw Grant Williams in the game seven of that Milwaukee series. Um, they're, they're just being told to shoot these extra guys, Derek White, Al Horford, Marcus Smart. And if he's going to shoot at a 46% clip in the playoffs as opposed to 36 for what he shot in the regular season and over the course of his career, is that sustainable? And Draymond was kind of dismissing that yesterday with Derek White and everybody else and Al Horford. If it's sustainable for a few more games, it might result in a championship for Boston. It's been huge for them. Right. Like, they got the looks. They knocked him down last night. So, Christian, before I let you go, you're hitting on this. Let me ask you this. Bottom line, like, they got the huge quarter from Steph Curry, 20 from Andrew Wiggins. Otto Porter went 4 of 5 from deep off the bench. But the offense was not there, as you're pointing out, when they had to have it most. Is it just an off night for Golden State, or is that Boston's defense locking them up? No, I think it's it's at least a little bit of the second part, and I think that's why it's important. I think it is really easy to look at some elements of the box score and say they weren't awful. Clay, I think, was 6 for 14, which is not great, but it's not horrendous. I think the bigger factor, one of the things that stood out to me, really, was the composition of the shots. Draymond Green had, I think, 12 shots and was 2 for 12. And I think Jordan Poole was two for seven. And if you're Golden State, you absolutely want that ratio reversed where you, you need Jordan Poole taking close to 12, 15, 20 shots instead of Draymond taking 12 and the shots looking the way they looked when Draymond took them. I mean, he had one where he, he like torpedoed it toward the basket, you know, on a layup. Um, but I think the fact that Jordan Poole's only getting seven shots tells you about his lack of comfort against this Boston defense. And the fact that Draymond's taking 12 shows you that Boston is kind of tricking him, really goading him into shooting, which is what they want. So I think Boston's defense dictated a lot about what we saw yesterday, and they just couldn't turn the faucet back on Golden State uh, once once it got to the fourth quarter. Dead on. So last thought, Golden State's won a road game in 26 straight postseason series. They're going to have to make it 27 in order to win the title. How do you see the rest of this series going? I, I think that Golden State probably makes some adjustments. I think that you have to be happy if you're Golden State that you were able to kind of take something away from Tatum. Obviously, it's scoring. I don't know that they need to be that aggressive about Tatum. Like, if I had a choice between 20 points for Tatum, something closer to his scoring average, versus Tatum having 13 assists, I would rather Tatum score a little bit more than he did yesterday if it's from Golden State than have him just become John Stockton. So I think that maybe to take the foot off the pedal from an aggression standpoint defensively is what Golden State does. Maybe don't bring quite as much help with Draymond uh, on the backside and stay closer attached, more closely attached to Horford, Derek White, Marcus Smart. I don't think you want the Boston Celtics going off from three the way they did at the end of the game. If that had been the third and the fourth quarter instead of just the third, the fourth, 
um, you know, we're looking at a game that it could have played out the same way. It just wouldn't have been all at once in that fourth quarter. And I think that's what Golden State keeps saying and why they're so dismissive of it. But we've seen we've seen Boston have 50%, 23s made in a night before. That could happen again. And so I, I would be less aggressive about guarding Tatum and making the other guys um, – making the other guys put the ball on the floor instead of just firing away from three. That all makes sense to me. He is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, co-host of Open Floor, SI's NBA show. He is a New York Times bestselling author. It's a great book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. That book is out right now. Chris Herring, my guest. Chris, great job. Great to have you back. Thank you so much. Good to talk with you, Jim. Thanks so much. Prices soaring at the pump. Discover's got your back with cash back. Use Discover to earn 5% cash back at gas stations and Target now through June on up to $1,500 in purchases when you activate. We know every dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cash back this quarter with Discover a card. Limitations do apply. Learn more at discover.com slash rewards. I am freaking fired up about Smack Off 28, which is now just 14 shows away. And I'm scheduled to miss one of those shows. So for me, it's 13 shows away. Let me repeat that. Smack Off 28 is 14 shows away. Less than that because we're halfway through this show and I'm going to miss, I'm scheduled to miss one of the shows. Then again, it can't get here soon enough for me. Now, the good news is it will be here, and it will be here soon. If you have not done so already, make sure to get out that red magic marker, circle June 24th. Make sure you are aware of the big day. Clear it out. Make your plans. Rip your ticket. RSVP. Or just get in here and stir some bleep up yourself. And if none of that works and you're just going to listen, make sure you get the day off from work. If you're not already working remotely, make sure you get that day off. Set up how and where you're going to listen or watch. If there are legitimate watch parties that I can help get the word out about, I'm more than happy to do that too. Every year there are watch parties. There are certain establishments that like to have people come together to watch the smack off. Because we're getting there now. We're getting there fast. We are flying towards the main event. We are mowing through our player profiles, a.k.a. our daily refresher on the major contenders for the smack-off strap. Yesterday, we profiled Gino in San Antonio. Gino. Gino understanding exactly what's at stake. Gino knowing what time it is. As soon as the profile ended... He came flying in here, and he let the hands go in every direction imaginable. Hey, Crisco, you're, you're not a dynasty, bro. You're not Tom Brady. You're more like Antonio Brown parading around the end zone with your shirt off, waving like an idiot to no one. You are no sort of jungle enforcer, Crisco. You're no Tommy fan. You're not even Jack Peterson, man. You're like Robin Ventura's face after Dr. Ryan performed emergency reconstructive surgery on it. That's what smack-off season is all about right there. I love it. I love it. I profile an OG, and then if that weren't enough, and apparently it wasn't, he comes in and he piles on and finishes. I got another one today. A dude that has summited the highest mountain in the jungle, donned the smack-off crown, 
And believe me, I'm not sure anybody has ever worn it as proudly as this guy did. Jim, if you'll indulge me for a brief moment, Jim, 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 thank you for your time, Mr. Jim Rome. So good. Jeff from Richmond. He will get the full treatment momentarily. First, do you want to be on TV? There's a very simple way. Record a smack-off prediction video. Nothing longer than 15 seconds. No drug use. No profanity. No violence. No homemade porn. Film it horizontally. Send it off to smackoffvideos at gmail.com. Smackoffvideos at gmail.com. I know that's a big ask for a lot of you. I know that bar is high, but just follow those simple instructions and you will see yourself on national television. Consider it your own little smack off. Good luck. Back to the dude. Back to the dude who actually coined my younger son's nickname, but totally by accident. Or Jake and Rogan, uh, Rogan Rome helping revive the rat family. That's Jeff from Richmond. And get it right now. That's Jeff from Richmond, not Jeff in Richmond. It's one of the many things about this dude that's unique. He's the only clone that is from somewhere and not in somewhere. And I'm not sure how or why that came to be. It's just one of the things that makes Jeff, Jeff. Along with pretty much everything else about this dude, right? His delivery, his voice, his takes, his consistency. There's nobody like this guy. And sure, some would say his calls all sound the same because they all are the same. And I would say, yeah, they do sound pretty similar, but they sound similarly awesome going back decades, actual decades. I mean, case in point, Jeff ripped a smack-off strap 20 years ago. This is what the winning call in smack-off 8 Circa 2002 sounded like. Jim, thanks for the vine, and thanks for the time in clones. This is the smack off. This event clones is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end when it comes to sports talk radios. And quite frankly, clones, that is exactly why 99.9% of you slackered, morally bankrupt, liquor swilling, egg swallowing, skank chasing, hippie lettuce smoking clones are on the outside looking in. Silk. Scavenging for cans or washing the dish in his cardboard box. John from Seatown having lunch with the mom. Lunch with the mom. You can never count on the clothes to have a positive impact on the bottom line because Bill from Syracuse with his what is going on? Proves, Jim, that even in the year 2002, the clones continue to mess the bed. 20 years ago, he made that call and won the smack off. Honestly, it probably won't sound all that different from what you might hear in the main event later this month, right? But that's what makes this guy such a polarizing jungle figure. Either you love that brand and the nostalgia or you despise it 
and you had for a very long time. There's never been any gray area or any middle ground with this dude. But you all know where I stand. I love this guy. I love it because he's been showing up and doing his thing for over 20 years now. And he's still dangerous. Still really dangerous. He proved it back in 2020. It's SmackOff 26 where he came out of nowhere to hit the top 10 for the first time in over a decade. Rick from Buffalo. Little Richard from Buffalo. Let me be clear here, Jim. There's no bad blood between that cheap imitation Rick from Buffalo. Little tiny Richard from Buffalo and the dirtiest player in the game, Jeff from Richmond. Why should I be concerned with the Peter Dinklage of the jungle clothes? Rick is so small, he buys his suits from the Build-A-Bear workshop. Trevor Price weighed in on Rick from Buffalo, and he said, and I quote, Rick from Buffalo will have a long, successful run in the jungle. Jim, on a lighter note, the CBS suits bumping around Jim in their horn rim glasses, in their microfiber polyester attire. Jim, the suits have actually formed a committee to explore the possibility of bringing back the Rat family. Jim, VP of Operations Tyler Hale ran the meeting. It sounded something like this. Wow, Jim, that rat family, certainly very interesting. Uh, Zane Smith, uh, Monica Selish, Coach K sipping from the upside-down water bottle, and oh my, Jim, Matt from L.A. holding a wedge of cheese in his little rat hands. Dude, Tyler Hale sounds and looks nothing like that. (laughs) That's incredible. Like, how do you even pull that name? Anyway, my dude, the the amazing thing about that call, other than it was amazing, was that he had not even participated in a main event since 2011. And then he just rolled up and he ripped forth. This is the range of possible outcomes with Jeff. He could no-show on the day of because he did so for years, or he could actually hit the podium. But something tells me he will be here on the 24th because he has been coming around lately, feasting on the likes of Matt in L.A. and John in New York. Matt, the bottom line is this. You and your takes are softer than a wisp of cotton candy. And, Matt, if I were you, I would never, Matt, and I mean ever, call the smack off again. By the way, Matt, How does it feel to get smashed up on national television? It doesn't matter how you feel, Matt. Jim! Thank you, Jim! For 27 smack-offs, Jim! And for being a very best friend, Jim! And, Jim, your interviews are some of the best interviews I've ever heard. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. All right, so you might call that a cheap shot or two or say he's coming for some low-hanging fruit. You just know this. Jeff doesn't care. Jeff has never cared. In fact, Jeff loves the hate. Jeff is running on that hate. You can't knock this dude off his game, and his game has not changed in a very long time. The dirtiest player in the game has come back 
to the Jim Rome Show. Why is Jeff from Richmond so serious about becoming Jim the two-time, two-time, two-time smack-off champion? Because that's how I roll my exclusive private driveway. I was looking out, Jim, at my six luxury sleds, sparkling clean, freshly polished, and perfectly aligned. And I know the two words that come to mind immediately, Jim, when you think of Jeff from Richmond are humble and modest. That's scrumptious logs. Jeff from Richmond has established himself as the only legitimate sports radio god. King Kong ain't got nothing on me. This is my yard. This is my house. And clones, trust me, I'm not coming to take part. I'm coming to take over. And until next time, Jim. Good night now! My brother, you better be there. You had better be there. I got a question for you. Why is Old Trapper beef jerky like the best thing ever? Well, there is something to be said for a family business, which stands by quality and produces the world's finest beef jerky. Do not be fooled by other brands. All beef jerky is not the same. Make sure you choose Old Trapper, where you can actually see the quality right through their iconic Clearview packages. Every single bite of Old Trapper is tender, never tough, because they only use the best ingredients. From their lean strips of beef, seasoned with top-quality spices to their real wood-fired smoke, Old Trapper delivers quality in every single bite and... Old Trapper Jerky comes in four mouth-watering flavors. Old Fashioned, which is classic beef jerky flavor. Tender, smoky, and delicious. You've got teriyaki with the yellow label, where Old Trapper turned the flavor down to 11. Hot and spicy, with a spice so nice you'll want to snack twice. Peppered, tender, seasoned beef covered in cracked pepper. And you can grab and go with a 4-ounce bag or load up with an 18-ounce bag. That way you've got enough for the entire team or fam or both. If you don't see it, ask for Old Trapper by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what is your beef? Dale Scott. Dale, it's great to have you on. How are you? I am doing great, Jim. How are you doing this good, morning? Good, good, Dale. Great to visit with you. There is so much in this book that I want to talk to you about, but I want to jump right into it. The book, Dale, opens up with a great chapter on, quote, nut cutters. For those who do not know, Dale, what is a nut cutter and how brutal are they? Well, the nut cutter is uh, several uh, things, actually. Uh, it's the obvious when uh, a foul ball or a wild pitch or something hits you in the, you know, the nut cutter. Um, but uh, it can also be a play. That's a nut cutter play, a, a close play or a really uh, a, a sticky situation. So that, uh, that also can be a nut cutter. So, yeah, a nut cutter can be used uh, in, a, in a few different ways. Uh, and umpires, uh, hopefully, hopefully you only use it because it's a close play and not the other way because that way is a little painful. I get that. Now, the thing about that is you make the point that when you do get a nut cutter that way, it's the rare time where everybody on the field, regardless of team, has sympathy for you, <laughs> except for one guy, Eddie Murray. What was Murray like and what did he say to you after one of them? Well, I took a shot in Anaheim and when he was hitting and uh, – you know, I, I had to walk it off a little bit, and uh, I kind of got my composure back. And finally, we got we got started back. And you know, usually guys are are sympathetic because they've had that happen before, and they, you know, they understand what it's all about. But uh, we get back, and I uh, very very next pitch, I call a strike, and, <laughs> and he said, "Well, apparently you haven't recovered yet." You know, I mean, that was horrible. I mean, he, I said, "Don't I even get like a sympathy pitch? I mean, one sympathy <laughs> pitch, you know?" Uh, but not from Eddie. Eddie was. Uh, let's just say Eddie was not a umpire friendly kind of guy. 
I got you. Dale Scott joining us. That is something. He is the author of The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game, Living My True Self. That book is available everywhere. So, Dale, growing up in Oregon, there was a time when you felt it was destiny that you would be the first baseman for the Dodgers. (laughs) What were you like as a baseball player? And then how did you first get into umpiring? Well, if you can imagine a baseball player, that cat uh, that cannot uh, hit, run, throw, or field. That that was me. Um, okay. I I loved baseball growing up. I, I you know I still do, but I, I was horrible at it. But I, I was as a kid. I was I just you know knew, you know when I grow up I'll just be the first baseman for the Dodgers. That's easy. That's that's what you do. Well, I figured that out uh, real quickly that 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 wasn't going to happen. So I started the umpire uh, when I was 15, going into high school. It was a three-year high school. Uh, so I was a sophomore. Going you know there's a JV team and a varsity team, and I was. You know, not even close to either of those. So, I, you know, I was trying to figure out how can I stay involved in baseball. And a friend of mine uh, had umpired the year before, and he said, "Try that." You know, and I thought, well, you know, I sat on the bench enough times. I could, you know, I've, I've watched the umpires quite a bit, so maybe that would be a a good thing to get into. And so that's what I did at 15, and I I just uh, I loved it. Talking to Dale Scott. So, Dale, you go to umpire school in San Bernardino, of all places. Since right. most people listening have no idea what that's like, how would you describe umpire school? What is a day like there? Well, umpire school, uh, they had a school years ago in San Bernardino. It's no longer there. Both schools now are in Florida. They run right after the new year, uh, like usually start January 2nd, I believe, or, or right around there. And they, they're about five weeks. They're pretty intensive. It's a uh, it's a six day a week, uh, eight to twelve hours a day. In the morning, you you're, you're up. You uh, you have lectures or going over the rule book or rule book tests or whatever. Then you know around ten o'clock ish, somewhere in there, you go out on the fields. They have drills set up for uh, setting up different situations. Umpire school teaches you the the uh, two man mechanics of umpiring, um, and then they also have uh, uh, cages set up with pitching machines, and you're calling pitches, and you. You're doing this for five weeks, and it's uh, pretty intensive. And 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 then the the top uh, uh, students from the two schools go to a one week advanced school, and then from the advanced school, that's when they start placing guys into the uh, lower minor leagues, and you know the guys that make it and and, and start their careers. We're talking to Dale Scott. I think most people wouldn't even know that that's something you go through. Let me ask you about Sparky Anderson, one of my favorite guys ever. I love Sparky. When I first came up in TV, he would come on the show, and he was just such a gentleman. However, you were umpiring. He was managing. And when you got to the majors, he was the second person you ever ejected. What do you remember, Dale, about that particular ejection? Well, he was the first manager I ejected, and Sparky, like, you know, he, you know, he, Sparky was old, old school, obviously, but he, but he, he, like most guys, uh, when an umpire comes up, you you come up with zero credibility, and you've got to earn that credibility with with the players and the managers and the coaches and, and the media and everybody else, as far as that goes. Uh, but uh, as, uh, we were in Toronto at the old Exhibition Stadium, and I had to play. It was a getaway day and a uh, day game, and I, uh, you know, they just weren't believing the, the, what I was calling back there. Uh, uh, Lance Parrish was the, was a catcher, and and uh, and you know he's he had the personality of a you know of a really small rock, uh, but uh, you know so uh, Sparky comes charging out to the uh, to the mound to talk to you know quote unquote talk to his pitcher and I knew exactly who he wanted to talk to so I figured well let's get this over with I went out there and uh, you know he said you know where are those pitches and I said Sparky we're not going to talk about pitches and you know he said the blah 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 we are and and there he and he, he went at me. Uh, I ejected him. And so we had, you know, we went face to face pretty good. He was screaming and yelling and, and going on. And finally, uh, you know, Davey Phillips, my crew chief, got, a, got him away. And, and, I, and as, as they were walking away, uh, Larry McCoy, another partner of mine, 
he just kind of discreetly handed me a, a handkerchief and he said, here, uh, take this. You need to wipe your face off. He's got, he sprayed the uh, tobacco juice all over your face. And I didn't, I didn't even realize it in the, in the argument we were, we were going at it. And I looked down and we, you know, at that time we wore those button down powder blue shirts and, and it was just all sprayed with the, the brown uh, tobacco juice. And my, I wiped my face and the, uh, Larry's handkerchief was uh went from uh, uh, white to brown pretty quickly. Wow, Dale Scott's joining us. He is the author of The Umpire Is Out, Calling the Game, and Living My True Self. You can get that book right now. So, Dale, you ejected Billy Martin on Memorial Day in 1988. He was fired after that, and it was the final ejection of his career, but there is more to it. The next time you were scheduled to be in New York, you were reassigned to Toronto. What did you find out afterwards from the league and then from the biography of Billy? Yeah, that was that was wild. Uh, of course, you know, 88, this is before email or any of that stuff. Uh, I got a call and they said, uh, we're going to switch you up. Uh, you're going to take Rocky Rose's place in Toronto. Rocky's going to go down and take your place in New York. And, that, you know, that happens a lot, Jim. You know, guys have to be uh, switched around a little bit for whatever reason. So I never really thought anything about it. Um, and then a little bit later that season, Marty Springstead, who was uh, the uh, director of umpires for the American League, that was his, uh, his uh, first uh, year in that position or actually not, no, it was his third year at that, by that point. But he said, uh, uh, Scotty, the reason we took you out of there, I, I didn't want to tell you, but, uh, the, the league received a letter and it said, if Dale Scott comes to New York, he's leaving in a body bag. Um, and, uh, <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm kind of happy you did uh, send me to Toronto. Uh, they not only, uh, kept me out of New York, they sent me out of the country, but, uh, years down the road, um, there was a biography and I, I don't remember the author's name, but there was a biography about Billy Martin. And in it, it talked about how after that incident in 1988, Billy was so mad that, uh, that he had, you know, was talking about trying to put a, a contract out on me. <laughs> and I thought that was, you know, like I said, it was years later. And I, and I thought how, how bizarre, but then I, you know, I'm thinking, I'm also thinking about that, that letter that the, uh, that the league got. And I thought, my goodness, you know, this, maybe there was something to this. I don't know. I mean, you know, Billy's gone. I, I you know, there's no way to defend it or whatever, but that was really bizarre and, uh, uh, you know, kind of frightening. Really bizarre and really frightening. I mean, Dale, it, it's, it's unusual to be sure, but what kind of mental makeup do you need to have to be an umpire? Well, it's not for everybody, Jim. <laughs> I can say that. Um, you know, I always, uh, I always joke, well, we love verbal abuse. That's where we get into it. But, uh, you know, you, you just have to have a whole different uh, thought process about things. You know, I have a, a sports official in general, you don't have a lot of nuance. It's either black or white. It's either yes or no. Um, you know, I don't have time when I have a play at second base and the runner's trying to stretch a single into a double that, uh, well, this guy's got a pretty good arm, but this guy's pretty fast. Well, the throw is true, but he, he did go off a little bit. And then he slid around here. And I would, you know, I don't have time to think of all this. I just have time to, is he out or is he safe? Was there a tag or was it, did he touch the base or not? Um, and, and, and do that. And, uh, you know, and so that's kind of the mentality of, a, of an umpire or, or a sports official that you, you, you just, you, you, you're given the facts and you, and you deal with it and, and you don't, you don't stray from that very much. Uh, but it's not for everybody. You certainly have to have, uh, uh, forget things. And what by that, I mean, if you, if you miss a call, you got to forget it pretty quickly because you got another one coming up. I mean, I can deal with a missed call after the game and watch the video and, and try to figure out why I missed it. It was my position, my head height, my timing, my, you know, whatever angles I had or whatever. But, uh, you, at the time, it's, it's like a player. I mean, at the time, if the shortstop makes an error, guess what? The next double play ball is coming. So you better be ready for it. Hmm. Dale Scott joining us. Dale, you write in the book, 
about knowing that you were gay as a teenager and that you were able to move forward without a lot of inner turmoil, but at the same time, you did not come out publicly until 2014. What was the process of coming out publicly like for you? Well, you know, uh, I, I actively tried to hide my sexuality when I got into baseball and for obvious reasons. I mean, I, I, I wanted to get promoted in the, in the minor leagues and hopefully to, all the way up to the big leagues. Um, I also, you know, my, my first professional game in June of 1981 was two weeks after this mysterious uh, disease was affecting uh, uh, men in San Francisco and New York. And of course, that was the start of the AIDS epidemic. And so I not only didn't want my sexuality to be found out because I thought it would, you know, limit me from any promotions. But now I also thought, you know, there, there wouldn't even be guys that would want to work with me because of the scare. And if you remember, Jim, in the 80s, there was a lot of scary I mean, people didn't know how it spread. It, you know, it was a very scary time for several years. So so that, you know, I, I, I actively tried to hide my sexuality. But by the time, uh, you know, that I came out publicly in 2014, let me back up a little bit. You know, by by the late 90s, early 2000s, the entire umpire staff knew and, and the people I worked for, Major League Baseball, knew. Um, so it wasn't, uh, you know, a big secret, but, uh, I had been with Michael, who's my husband now, but we had met, uh, in 1986, right after my first year in the American league, he had been with me on this whole journey. We got married in 2013. Uh, I came out the next year. And the reason I did is just because I, I, I at, frankly, I was just uh, tired of, of one tired of, uh, of, of, of playing that game. But, but two, so many people had worked so hard to make marriage equality happen and, and, and legal. And here I am, a married uh, man, uh, you know, uh, reaping those benefits. And I thought, this is just ridiculous for me to do this. So I came out uh, not knowing what the reaction would be. But, but uh, I did know that uh, I'd gotten to the point by then, uh, frankly, Jim, that uh, if, if somebody has a real problem with me being gay, you know, I think it's really your problem because it's not mine. I know who I am. I'm happy you know, who I am with my life, and, and I'm, I'm going to live it. Dale Scott joining us. Dale, in terms of that reaction, for instance, after you came out, your first spring training game was Cincinnati-Cleveland. In between innings, Marlon Byrd stopped. He gave you a bear hug, and he said, quote, buddy, I am so proud of you. You're free. You're free. End of quote. Yeah. You also heard from numerous people about how you inspired them and gave them hope. What did that mean to you? It meant a lot. I mean, when, when Marlon, when Marlon, did, you know, I came out in December of 2014. So this was a few months after that, you know, in March. And I, you know, I wasn't quite sure what the reaction would be. And when, when Marlon did that, uh, that very first spring training game, um, it, you know, it, it, it meant a lot, but the reaction I got, the, 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 the hundreds of emails I got from, from around the world, uh, was so uplifting and, uh, people saying that because of my story, it, it, it gave them courage to, uh, you know, come out to their family or, or, uh, to, to their coworkers or whatever. I, I heard from all walks of life. I heard from, uh, people that weren't gay. I, I remember a father in Toronto, uh, wrote me and said, I, you know, I'm so proud of you and congratulations. He goes, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this is another step in a society where my two girls, as, as they grow up, they're like uh, 10 and eight as they grow up, that this, you know, is a, side, a step that where a story like this won't even be a story someday. And, and, and you know, it, it just was extremely uplifting to hear all these messages from, from so many different people. And, uh, and that's par partly really why I wrote the book also is because, uh, 
uh, just getting my story out. You know, if it, you know, I heard from a lot of people, Jim, I, there's a lot more people I didn't hear from, but, but I'm sure, uh, in some way, uh, you know, my story helped them. And so that, that's a, a, part of the catalyst for me writing the book also. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt, Dale, how many people you probably have helped that you don't know about. In fact, you're regarded both inside and outside of the game as a trailblazer. How does it feel to hear people refer to you like that? Uh, it's surreal. <laughs> it's surreal. You know, I'm just, I'm just being me, Jim. I mean, I, you know, I, I it, it, will it help? I, and it has it helped. Uh, yes, it has. And, I, and I'm very, uh, uh, gratified with that. I'm very happy with that. I'm, I'm glad that, that I could do that. But, you know, I, I also, I, I'm also just, uh, you know, I, for so many years I heard when I'm told just baseball stories and I say, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. And I, and I would just laugh because I really had no intention to do that. But, but it's been, it's just been a lot of fun because, uh, be able to share, you know, share some of these stories. I mean, people, people now with the book are, are getting a hold of me and just say, my goodness, that, you know, that story about this or about that, they're just laughing. And, and, and that, that makes me feel good. So I'm, I'm really, uh, uh, how does it make me feel? I, I, it's it's surreal. I'm gratified, and I'm I'm happy to, it, that it's uh, you know helped many people. Dale Scott, my guest. The book is called The Umpire Is Out: Calling the Game, Living My True Self. My True Self is available everywhere right now. I should say, Dale. One last thought. I want to ask you. You know, we joke about the nut cutters, but the fact is, it's a really dangerous job. In April of 2017, you took a foul tip off the mask. It left you with a concussion, which was your second in a matter of months. You met with doctors. You met with specialists. Obviously, you spoke with your husband, Mark. What were those conversations like at that time? Uh, well, you know, I. Uh, <laughs> somber, really. I mean, you know, you, you do a career for so long, and I was going to retire in the, after the 2019 season. This happened in 2017, so I was very close. But after I after I talked to a, a couple of doctors, you know, Mike, my my husband, uh, he never pressured me. My my parents, they never pressured me, but but they were very relieved when I made <laughs> made the decision that I was going to step down. But but the one the one doctor I talked to uh, in uh, or in Portland, Oregon uh, OHSU, Oregon Health Sciences. Uh, was a specialist. He had, you know, I, I'd heard from MLB doctors and stuff. Not that I didn't trust him, but I wanted somebody that had nothing to do with baseball and talk to him. And uh, you know, after a, a consultation with him and, and, and going over everything, I, I'll never, I'll never forget. He said, you know, Dale, I, I tell most of my patients, uh, uh, if if you if you uh, you know if you're tired of getting concussions, if you want this to stop, he goes, the best thing to do is put yourself in a position that it doesn't happen again. <laughs> well, mm. well, that's. That was pretty obvious. <laughs> just you get off there. So um, I, 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 concussions are, are weird, Jim. They, they don't. They're, they're researching every day, but they don't know long-term effects yet. They don't really know how it, it, it can or may not affect you. I'm, I'm doing well. I haven't had any problems. Uh, that does not mean that in the future I may have some. I, you know, hopefully not. But, but uh, I, I just felt that uh, you know what I'm playing on house money, and I think it's time to walk away. Dale Scott, my guest. Dale, let me correct myself. Mike, of course. Mike, yeah. Not yep, Mark. Yep. My bad. My uh, apologies for that. A well, former... he's, he's been called worse, Jim. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so have I. So have I. It is such a good book. The author of The Umpire is Out, Calling the Game, and Living My True Self is available everywhere. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many great, great, great stories in this book. He umpired for more than 30 years in the major leagues. An MLB crew chief for 16 seasons. Dale Scott, my guest. Dale, I really appreciate that. Thanks so much for that. Congrats on the book and a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Trade pros. Whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job, which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. 
With over a thousand locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and Samer next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. The week that was is nothing more than a glorified mixtape similar to the ones that I used to make for the honeys back in junior high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going on? Welcome to the program. I am Jim Rome, the rare DECA. Tuesday, yeah. How y'all living? So how'd that three-day weekend go for you? Hope you had a great time. Miami was done. D-U-N. Done. Now I'm done. So now I'm done. Now they're done. Done. Yeah! Butler for three. Short. Rebound. Jalen types no, it out. No, the Over. analytics Miami may not say that's the right basketball play. But to me, the right basketball play is what Jimmy Butler says is the right basketball play. My teammates like the shot that I took. So I'm living with him. He is Chris Haynes. Jimmy felt like they had to get the lead. He just wasn't going to beat Boston in a shootout. So I can't fault Jimmy for taking that shot. Brandon Corona. He ordered the personalized Paul's dog underoos with my face on the front and my butthole on the back. In Rextra, 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 Mall. You ever think you'd see the day where the Lakers needed Darvin Ham more than Darvin Ham needed the Lakers? Well, it's true. Because Ham would have gone Ham on the Lakers if they tried to pull that nonsense with him. Keegan Murray is my guest. For me, I make, I make, I marinate a lot of chicken just because it's not dirty. Keep my body, use it as like a machine. Saw Stucknut posted his smack off odds the other night, and obviously that dope knows nothing about the show. The nuts gotta be trolling this guy hard, right? Rick and Buffalo Six to one. Reaction. Nut. Great job. Clones. Now you do yours. Let's go to the goat man. Wanted to call in and just say that. Sorry, let me eat quickly. That was horrible. Andrew Jackets is my guest. So right now we're just really trying to make sure that we're prepared and that we're going to make a run and, and win that tournament as opposed to what it felt like in 19, which was just kind of celebrating the conference championship. If you're relaxed right now, then you're probably not. Mike Trout. And when Tommy Pham talks junk, faces get smashed. There's a code to this. I said I didn't forget about that and I walked up to him and I slapped him. It was like three weightlifters lifting. Jalen Johnson. There is family in my background in Fresno, so dude, I may need to go back with you and represent. Hey, let's do it. I mean, I take you to a few food spots. I mean, we can eat good, and then we go out to the community and we can do some things for sure. Hey, mom, are we really from Fresno, or am I making this up? And her response was, I was born in San Francisco. However, both sides of the family lived in Fresno. I'm half chowed, half Fresnac. That's impossible! Annie Staples. Hey, Brian, so now that you're in a conference, isn't the worst thing dealing with the commissioner and he starts to answer and then some narc narc in our little group of reporters goes oh commissioner's right over your shoulder i'm not asking you to narc out the narc but who the hell does that oh i don't if i knew who it was i would name that person i want that person to be a pariah narc my beef alvin hawking is the goat Uh, uh. who's the runner-up the junior high kid with a fart noise machine Uh. hey jimbo how about the who order an aisle seat on a plane and they love to sleep. Hey, Jimmy, my beef is with women who complain about how difficult childbirth is. Then you find out they had a C-section and skip the hardest. Ah. My beef is with somebody telling me something that happened in a movie that's been out less than a week, and now when I finally get my tickets for tomorrow night, you've given me a spoiler. Thanks, Rome. I said Maverick ran. (laughs) 
Oh, great, Rome. Great. Been looking forward to it all week long. Has there ever been a movie that Maverick did not run in? Gino, what's up? No matter what they're talking about, they make it sound like a question. Yeah, you want to go with? You want to get some pop? No. No, I don't want to go with. All right? I don't want your pop. Sounds like Gino's been flaring like up like the human herp that he is, man. I mean... 15 second video. Film it horizontally if possible. Nothing inappropriate. No nudity. No drug use. No drinking. No homemade porn. Pluto. Jesus Christ. It's homemade porn. Chucks skimming through all the smack off video submissions. Why are you surfing, suds? Should you not be skiing, suds? Now that I know where you live, you're in Colorado, right? Why are you not skiing, suds? Well, because I got a tunnel and, you know, the car's surfing kind of. It's a, it's a very catchy name. Very cool. Yeah, Scott's joining us. Uh, Lance Parrish was a, was a catcher and he had the personality of a small rock. I didn't even realize it. I looked down and we, it was just all sprayed with the brown uh, tobacco juice. Oh my gosh. If I'd known it was Erica Herskowitz, I would have never have gone over so long. You take your time, Jim. No problem. And shout out to my wife who's going to make this bachelor party. She's an 11. Happy birthday, Alvin. Good day, Romy. Rex, 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 Rex. I can't even say it without laughing. Rome, anytime. Take care, brother. Mav runs oh, in the movie. Sorry. Thanks for having me on, Jim. McCarr. A car. Dead. Hey, Chris, go. Clone porno for us to watch. Python season. Holy cow. San Diego. It is awesome to be home. May I never, ever leave ever again. Good night now. V. In the fee. V. Brother, what's going on? How are you? Rome Tonamo Bay. What is up, my guy? Dude, what's up? Where are you? Yo, I'm hauling ass to the desert. I got my boys in the car. We're rolling to the bachelor party. Okay, Rit, a car is like a horse, but with wheels. That moves really fast. I know you're old as dirt. But, Rome, once I get to the crib, the Airbnb plug, I'm going to have a few Rome Delos, a shot of Patron, and I'm going to let it rip, my guy. Ooh, mid-call war. War me and Alvi for first Alvi's birthday, but war me and Alvi for not being sexist. Because we both love sex. Sports take. The Lakers need to get off Russell Waste Brick. Like Amber Heard needs to get off Fiber. Final thoughts. Yo, Romy Stillskin, keep doing what you're doing. I got, I want to let you know this, dude. I got all my guys at their bachelor party listening to the show. We're going off for you. Yo, shout out, Chuck. Happy birthday, Alvi. Rick, you're old as dirt. Stay dirt. And shout out to my wife, who's going to make this bachelor party possible. Bro, I'm telling you, on like a one to Giselle, she's an 11. Me and the fee, out. He did it. He somehow got through it. Barely, he got that plane down. In Boston, right to the front of the line. Mark, what's going on, dude? How are you? How are you, Jim? Great. Hey, Alvy, I would say happy birthday, but you're not supposed to say that to a grown adult after they turn 21. Grow up, y'all. Hey, Jim, you're absolutely right. Jeff from Richmond does hit a lot of low-hanging fruit because when Beatus has taken both of your feet, it's literally all Jeff can reach. I know you want people to put their smack-off predictions in portrait mode. Clearly rules Jeff out. This dude only fits in landscape. Hey, uh, speaking of Beatus, those were not regular donuts you had this morning, Jim. You're all hallucinating because Cindy got them from her weed dealer, Aaron Rodgers. Did you see that dirtbag on the match? 
He looked like he walked straight out of a grow house and onto the first tee. Actually, you know what? No one saw what Aaron Rodgers looked like because the programming geniuses at TNT aired the match at 4 p.m. local time on a Wednesday. So let me get this straight. You have access to four of the NFL's best, 12 holes mic'd up, and you put it up at 4 p.m. against Judge Judy and Matlock reruns? Who in the hell came up with that terrible time slot, dude? Damon Amendolara? Hey, Jim, I know you want RSVPs. I have it on good authority that Benny and Wisco is not going to call this year. Good strategy, Ben. Listen, you'll get a free pass just as long as you say you can't call but still manage to find time to live-tweet the entire event, immediately jump on the Stuck Nut After Show, and then spend the next 12 hours on Woodscopes breaking down the event from every angle. Looking at you, Mike and Indy. You coming to the prom this year, brah, or are we just reading your breakdown again live on the Internet? Hey, listen, Jim, last Mac-Off, I was tired. I was exhausted. I put in like 30 all-nighters before the Mac-Off. I had herpes before the Mac-Off, two outbreaks in the span of a week. But I'm here. I'm healthy. I'll be there. Bye. My man, Mark in Boston, rack him. I will see you, dude. I will see you on the 24th, and they will hear your profile. He's back for more. Otis, what's going on? Yeah, thanks for the vine, Jim. Jim, you know, I'm pulling for Jeff and Richmond to win this smack off. He could use that five large for a Jenny Craig starter kit. And also, let's hope Terrence and Sierra Madre can pick up the mighty 1090 out of San Diego. Reaction! Happy birthday to Alvy. I guess he gets to ride shotgun in the XR4TI today, huh? We all know he's too young to have a driver's license. Hey, clones, if you decide what to buy with that five gur for winning the smack off, you can always get courtside seats for a Lakers game. Well, at least for the first half anyway. Jim, a big shout-out to Brad and Corona for throwing that pre-smack off party at his palatial estate. What a crib, Romy. Every single room in Brad's house was plum full of softball trophies. Sweet. By the way, B.I.C., Patty and Modesto lost a nipple ring somewhere. She said to check the filter in that hot tub in your front yard there by the curb. Remember, clones, 30 pieces of silver will put a huge, huge, huge bulge in your sweatpants. Fire in the hole. That's all I got, Romy. I'm out. Sugar sequel. John, what's going on? They keep making me mad. Shut sugar bitches has a name like Brad. Shut sugar bitches live inside of no cow. Shut sugar bitches smacking just like a child. Shut sugar bitches they keep calling wrong up. Shut sugar bitches with the wrong damn stuff. Shut sugar bitches get him off my team. Chef Sugar Bitches, if you know what I mean. Chef Sugar Bitches. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Alvin said. Alvin's had enough, I guess, John. 
Matt in LA, you got in just in time. What's going on, Matt? How are you? Hey, Romulus James, thanks for the vine. So I heard the profile from the heaviest player in the game, the underroo rocking, wrestler speech recycling, ranch hand ham and egg, you know, beast, fat farm resident, Jows in Richmond, who had your boy Matt in LA's name in his mouth almost as much as rib racks and bacon. But not to worry, Jim, that Michelin man stunt double ain't going two decades between crowns as much as he's going two hours between five-course meals. Jeff's so fat, his sops are ass, moonlights as a boat anchor every summer at Virginia beaches. Also hilarious to me how two tons of fun from Richmond touts himself as a jungle bully, not because he outweighs the average bull and can eat one in 15 minutes, but because this out-of-shape, oversized oaf supposedly works as a financial advisor. In other words, he's a white-collar... <laughs> Shark, get out of the water. Matt, Matt, run, swim. Good night now.